The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credits for your participation in this activity, or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. This podcast was developed from content delivered during the use of novel hormone agents and systematic therapy in advanced prostate cancer live course. The first topic, Practical Guide to Advanced Prostate Cancer Clinics, presented by Dr. Larry Karsh. Uh, the snapshot of our practice is that we have 17 urologists, a radiation oncologist. We have a close alignment with medical oncology. Uh, we have all of our uh, outpatient GU services under one roof. Uh, we set up our center about 12 years ago, so we offer surgery, radiation, imaging, pathology. Uh, I run the uh, research as my passion, so we have a very robust research center. And so what I tell you uh, reflects our model. Uh, what, uh, you know, you're going to uh, develop your model based on your needs and uh, circumstances. And so I believe that you can use our template to adapt uh, uh, the model for your APC clinic. These are my disclosures. So these are the topics we're going to focus on. Why do it, how to get started, what are the key components, and who are the players on your team, and how you develop and operationalize an APC, and what are the barriers. Now I'm going to be talking about the challenges and barriers as we go through the talk. Uh, so there are going to be a couple of slides at the end uh, that you can review later. So this is the uh, prevalence of cancer uh, in the United States today. Uh, we have this silver tsunami that's approaching. You can see as, as uh, time goes on here, we have more septa, octa, and nonagenarians. And these patients are living longer, probably because uh, a lot to do with some of these treatments that we're doing for cardiovascular disease and diabetes. But with this increase in population, we're going to have an increased prevalence of cancer. And the demographic, clinical, and economic pressures are influencing the healthcare system. So we have an expanding aging population. Patients are going to be on uh, long, uh, treatment time longer with these uh, life-prolonging uh, uh, therapies. And that's going to increase the uh, cost of medicine. And so our challenge is to try to maintain or even improve quality of care and efficient delivery of care so that we can maximize the value proposition. And so what is that? Well, we have this shifting paradigm. It's already in motion from volume to value. And this is the MACRA system. MACRA was, uh, was approved uh, by Congress in 2015. And it was there to replace the SGR, the Sustainable Growth Model, which, is around, uh, which was around in the 2005. Now, what that was supposed to do was it was supposed to keep the uh, costs of Medicare down to the 1990 levels. But as you will recall, it didn't do that. There was supposed to be a 3% cut per year. And for different reasons, uh, uh, physician pushback, uh, and a number of different issues that never happened. They kept putting off that 
so that by the time 2015 came around, we were going to have this 30% cut, which is totally unsustainable. We just, how, how can you run your practice on a 30% cut? So Congress passed MACRA. Uh, I'm not going to get into all the details of MACRA, but that still allows us to do a fee-for-service system. Uh, the healthcare landscape is changing. Uh, change begets opportunities for forward thinkers to enhance their urology practice. Change also promotes the understanding of the importance of collaboration and subspecialization. So that the Advanced Prostate Cancer Clinic really uh, is an opportunity. And this may lead to not only prostate, but also bladder and renal. Now I've been in practice for about 30 years and I've always heard the sky is falling and we weren't going to make it. And I remember the days when Medicare would you would bill Medicare and they would just send you what they thought they needed to. So there wasn't any standardization. And then they went to a coding system where it was going to be standardized and we thought, oh, we're not going to make it. Uh, and then we've gotten into all these other changes. And so unless you adapt to all these changes that are taking place, you're going to be unhappy and a lot of docs are going to retire. So I think that you can look at this. Oops, you can look at the glass as being half empty or half full. I think that this uh, isn't working. But uh, the pessimist will look at this half glass as being a half glass of piss. Uh, an optimist will look at it as liquid gold. So why do it? What are the benefits? Uh, it provides an ability to expand your clinic and sustain a higher quality of care and improve patient outcomes. Uh, so that you can retain patients and in doing so, grow your revenue and market share, promote a center of excellence and provide the best care possible for your patients. So the benefits are that you can uh, experience with disease, with this disease will get us involved in bladder and renal and it may even spark some interest in clinical trials uh, uh, and research. So these are some of the challenges and the barriers. It's uh, convincing your partners to refer patients to the, to the physician champion, uh, having enough staff to run these clinics, having a nurse navigator, having your EMR integrated so you can identify pathways and patients, and a financial system to approve uh, costly therapies, and having enough space or acquiring space to do these clinics. Uh, so that you can do infusions, injections, patient visits, and then setting up an in-house uh, dispensing pharmacy. So does group size matter? Well, a larger group is more likely to have the resources to staff uh, and incorporate an APC clinic without needing to have additional staff. A smaller clinic may have to uh, hire extra staff. Uh, and in, in a larger group, we have a, an association. We have our own med uh, radiation oncologist. Uh, and in an association with a medical oncologist, but if you're in a smaller group, you may have to try to forge those alliances. And no matter whether you're large or small, you need to concentrate on, on identifying and retaining APC patients, you need to build a, a team, uh, and have your uh, champions, the physician, nursing, and administrative champion, and we need uh, urologists who uh, refer their patients to the APC clinic will create a win-win situation for the group, and I'll show you a little bit more detail. But uh, there is uh, no, uh, not all a, uh, practices are alike, and there is no one-size-fits-all formula. So as I mentioned before, you're going to have to adapt this model to suit your needs and circumstances. 
So these are the nuts and bolts of uh, setting up a uh, clinic. I'm going to start with how to, to get started, and then uh, I'm going to compartmentalize it into uh, uh, the uh, operationalizing the clinic. So to get started, we need commitment. First and foremost, you need a commitment from the practice leadership. You need to identify your scope and goals, obtain expertise in the disease state, identify the key personnel, maybe incorporate research if you can, and then develop some pathways and guidelines. So first and foremost, you really need to have that commitment for the practice leadership. You have to have financial and organizational commitment, uh, and that's really key. So the capital requirements are uh, really modest. I think that the biggest outlay is going to be hiring staff. Uh, we hired a, a nurse navigator, uh, and I think that that's your biggest outlay. Now, if you don't have enough space, then you may have to acquire some new space, but you try to maximize what you have. But I would uh, say that the equipment is uh, really, uh, you don't need very much. Uh, if you have the space, you can set up your own infusion center, so to speak, for, let's say, sip tea. So all you need is a comfortable chair, an IV pole, and if you really want to get fancy, maybe uh, put a TV set in there. And then as far as uh, if you're going to do in-house dispensing, you may have to invest in a, a software program for your computer. So the scope and goals, it's not really what therapies you're going to offer. You really have to offer all therapies to these patients. You have to offer whatever is FDA indicated. But how are you going to deliver that? Are you going to be able to administer uh, chemotherapy or immunotherapy in your clinic? Or do you need to partner with, uh, let's say, a medical oncologist uh, to give these therapies? And do you want to dispense oral oncolytics? Well, there's ways to do it. You can, uh, depending on your state, you sometimes have to set up a, a full-service pharmacy. Uh, but in many states, it's just a matter of in-house dispensing, and you can get these therapies uh, through a group purchasing organization. We use EuroGPO. Uh, and then if you don't have a radiation oncologist or medical oncologist, uh, you're, you're going to have to develop a relationship with them. So as far as in-house dispensing, you need to check. Uh, uh, let's look at the personnel. Who are your champions? Uh, you need a, phys a physician champion, nurse, and operational champion. And I would strongly consider having a multidisciplinary team. And I'll get into more detail here. But what, what makes the champion? Uh, the physician champion is dedicated to the treatment of advanced prostate cancer and has the intellectual and clinical desire to follow various treatment modalities. The uh, nursing champion will navigate the patient through the prostate cancer journey. And the uh, operational champion uh, understands the practice economics of the APC can seize the pro forma business aspects, understand reimbursement, uh, and understands the infrastructure and cost required. Now, although the, C, the uh, uh, operational champ is usually the CEO, they're not physicians. So they can advise us on billing, but they do not make medical decisions on who gets therapy. That's one of your questions. So these are some of the challenges for the physician champ. There's a new learning curve. You have to learn all of these things that you uh, came this morning and, and heard about. And you need to stay on top of the latest innovations and therapeutic options. 
and you need to be able to monitor disease progression and realize how to treat some of these AEs. And we treat these patients according to FDA indications and accepted guidelines. Uh, and I would recommend that you develop some pathways. The nurse navigator has many functions. Uh, he or she will navigate the patients through the healthcare system and establish a report with the newly diagnosed patients, family members, and their loved ones. Try to economize and schedule appointments. Conduct meaningful discussions to outline the journey. Uh, actively identify barriers uh, with patients, with resources, healthcare support services. Communicate with the patients and families and assist in the transition from the general urology clinic or from active treatment to palliative or hospice care. So I think this is a key position. Uh, and we have our, uh, hired our nurse navigator about a year ago and it's made a real big difference and uh, she's really excellent at what she does and the patients really appreciate it. So research really gives us the opportunity to uh, provide therapies when the therapies we have now are insufficient. So I can't overemphasize how important it is. I uh, am the director of our research. I'm also an attending urologist there. But we are able to uh, uh, give tomorrow's therapies today at no or a low cost to the patient. It allows uh, prestige to you and your practice, patient satisfaction. Remember in MACRA, there are going to be metrics that were measured on for value. One of them are patient reported outcomes. If you can make these patients happy, uh, you're going to add value to your practice. Uh, and it can generate income for the practice, but if you don't run it right, you can lose money. So it's not going to be a windfall, but it can generate that. And referring physicians want their patients to get the best. Now, I've been a, a, a trialist probably since about 1997, and I've been the PI of over uh, 250 studies. And it's very rewarding, not only to me, but to see patients that have experienced all these treatments that you saw here today through clinical trials. And that's where I really learned how to use all these uh, therapies that we even talked about today. So we have uh, some treatment algorithms and pathways that we've developed. Uh, it's, the, it's kind of the skeleton of what we have. We haven't, uh, we're still filling in a lot of this. But we have pathways for newly diagnosed prostate cancer patients, newly diagnosed metastatic patients, and pathways that go all the way through to metastatic CRPC and especially uh, our bone health clinics. So I think that the multidisciplinary model is really essential uh, for providing excellent uh, patient care. Uh, and I th the key uh, stakeholders are the treating physicians, the urologist, medical oncologist, and the radiation oncologist. In our shop, the urologist is the quarterback. So if you want to be the quarterback, you, know, you need to know all the rules and how to get these patients down the field of the CRPC landscape. So that's what you learn in a course like this today. You're getting a pretty comprehensive view of uh, the, in, the therapies that are out there and how you're going to uh, treat patients with them. And then the uh, other valuable stakeholders include a primary care physician, so that if you are having some AEs uh, with some of these therapies, uh, let's say with Abby, they get uncontrollable hypertension uh, or hypokalemia, uh, you may need some help. And your primary care physicians can help you out with that. And then we have our support staff. And this is the nurse navigator. We have a research team. We have a chemo nurse. 
as well as uh, other nurses, and then it requires authorization staff, billing people, the COO. We uh, have uh, uh, palliative care and hospice that we offer for our patients. And then to have a really comprehensive cancer program, you really need to uh, have genetics involved and have genetics, uh, or you can send out for genetics counseling, but genetics needs to be a part of that cancer program. And then we have an APC tumor board that meets monthly, and this is what we do. Uh, we have our multidisciplinary group that you see on the right-hand side, and then uh, these are what we do. The patients are referred in uh, by their primary care docs or primary urologist, and we look at NCCN and AUA guidelines. We review research studies that these patients may uh, be candidates for. Uh, we decide whether or not patients should have palliative care uh, or hospice referrals. Uh, we treat bone health. We re make recommendations there, genetics counseling. And then after this patient's presented to the tumor board, then they're transferred to the APC clinic. Now, I run this APC, Advanced Prostate Cancer Clinic. We call it the Advanced Therapeutics Clinic now. But one of my partners, Dave Reagan, uh, also uh, contributes to that, so we both run these clinics together. So uh, how do you operationalize this? So oper operationalization really requires a balance between the business and uh, clinical excellence in your uh, facility. So I'm going to talk about clinic structure, uh, EMR integration, patient identification, monitoring patients, and uh, patient resources and educational materials. But whatever you do, you need to implement that plan. So how, you know, the, I remember I said that there, it's impossible to say that one size fits all. So these are some things you may want to think about in setting up your clinic. Uh, patient uh, uh, physician preferences. Now, how are your partners going to feel about sending the patient to uh, a specialist in your group? Uh, if you're a, uh, your economic system is eat what you kill, then some of the physicians are, they don't want to give their patients up. Uh, and in other cases, they don't want to give their patients up because they've been treating them for so long. But if uh, in our system, we, we are communism for capitalists, so we all share in the income. And what our goal is to just try to subspecialize and give the patient the best care. Uh, so that uh, I think that, you know, when you're talking about these high revenue producing therapies, you're all going to share that in your group. So what you want to do is have the expert who's not dabbling uh, and can give the right patient the right treatment at the right time. And I think everybody wins when you have a situation like that. Geographic locations, there can be some uh, groups that are spread out geographically. So how do you do that? You may want to just set up a few centers where you have uh, centers of excellence and set up a APC clinic there. You know, nowadays, patients are willing to travel if they think they're going to get the best care. And EMR integration, there's a lot that happens on the, the back side of this to integrate this. My partner, Dave uh, Reagan, he has been, he's very savvy with computers. He's been able to uh, uh, get these programs together where you, uh, I can just click on the EMR and I have orders for uh, labs or imaging or referral to a medical oncologist, radiation oncologist. Uh, hospice or, or, or uh, genetic counseling. And then we have uh, templates for notes so that uh, we have one for an APC office visit, immunotherapy infusion, 
the radiopharmaceutical infusion, oral oncolytic monitoring. And then we have scheduling templates for the visits uh, to see the doc or even nurse visits, and as well as uh, templates for immunotherapy infusions or ra radiopharmaceutical infusions. So how do you identify the patients? Well, you can work with your IT department or an outside vendor to set up a query. For example, how many patients on ADT uh, have a rising PSA? You can query your system to do that. And there are outside companies, and we use one called PPS Analytics, but they can mine that data for you. And they can customize it so that you can pull up different diagnoses and, and uh, uh, metrics that you're looking for in order to mine that data and keep track of things. Now, if you're a smaller practice and, and you're not going to do that, you can use spreadsheets. My research na uh, recruiter uses a spreadsheet when she uh, is looking for all these patients we're use, uh, we, that, we are, that are candidates for the trials. So, but if you're going to do that, you have to have somebody checking these queries, and our nurse navigator does that once a week. And then the way that it works in our practice is that our staff, if it's the nurse or even our research uh, recruiter, will communicate that this patient is a candidate to the physician champion as well as the primary urologist. And if they're in agreement, then the patient is presented to our advanced prostate cancer tumor board, and then they're transitioned to the clinic. And the uh, physician and nurse communicates with the patient to facilitate a, a smooth transition. So scheduling the patients, uh, there are different ways to do it. In our practice, the primary urologist contacts the uh, patient directly in phone or in person. The nurse champion then uh, calls the, the patient and, uh, that's, uh, and reiterates uh, that we think that they're a good patient for the, uh, the clinic. I know one practice in Cincinnati uh, that sends a letter. They're very, they've got a larger geographic area, and they send a letter out to the patients, and it's essentially kind of a congratulatory letter. Congratulations. Uh, we have some, an expert that's going to treat your disease. Uh, so that's how they communicate it. Uh, but uh, we want to also economize visits. Again, that goes to patient satisfaction. We want to try to get all of these different, there's a lot of moving parts that happen uh, where you have your ADT injections, you have imaging, you have labs, bone health treatments. So what we try to do is consolidate that into one visit. We try to get these patients to have it at their office visit. And if they can't, then, then we'll make other visits. But you, know, you have to be aware that all these things are happening. And in some cases, the patient's family is driving them there. And there, you know, there's a lot of, of uh, time spent with the patient family uh, taking off of work to, to uh, move these patients around. So uh, we try to economize these visits. And it takes uh, a little uh, uh, practice. And, and, uh, and, and I think that you can get that down and it does satisfy the patients more. But as far as imaging, you know, when looking at the NCCN and the AUA, they talk to you about imaging guidelines, but they don't really get into specifics. Uh, and it's not a practical way to do it because they're really based on prostate cancer working group two and three where these are clinical trials and these patients are getting imaging every three or four months on these trials. I, uh, we like to use radar one and three. Uh, they're uh, pretty concise in, in giving you recommendations on when to image these patients. Radar one trial uh, we published in um, uh, 2014. Dave Crawford is the author, and we've got the 
our reference on the bottom there. Uh, Radar 3 is available online, but it will be in the Journal of Urology uh, at, in early 2019, and it, it uh, talks about M1 CRPC. So that's been helpful for us. And then as far as labs, these are the basic labs that we use when patients start. PSA, T, CBC, CMP, LDH, and ALKFOS. And then there are specific labs per each therapy. Abiraterone requires every two weeks for the first three months, and then monthly. Radiopharmaceuticals require a CBC before each injection uh, to make sure that they haven't developed thrombocytopenia. And then as far as immunotherapy and androgen receptor antagonists, that's really whenever uh, uh, they're needed. And as far as ordering the therapies, the physician prescribes the medications. We sit down and talk to the patient about the mechanism of action, the risks and benefits of the therapy, and then the nurse navigator uh, educates and, and uh, reinforces this with the patients and uh, assesses the, uh, uh, whether they have questions or not so that we can eliminate some of those barriers. And then we have the patient and physician uh, sign a benefit investigation form that is provided by the manufacturer, or you can have your billing department submit to the insurance company. We do both. Now, you need preauthorizations for uh, oncolytics, oral oncolytics, and, and injectables. If you don't get that authorization, uh, all you need is one sip T uh, infusion that you don't get paid for, and your partners are probably going to have you shut the thing down, shut your uh, uh, clinic down. But our CEO checks off and makes sure that every one of these is approved before we give it to the patient. And then you want to make sure that you have the right ICD-10 codes uh, for metastatic uh, prostate cancer. It needs to be documented in the chart. You want to have ECOG scores, whether they have METs or not, uh, and uh, the diagnosis of CRPC. Now, finances can be a challenge these days. There are private foundations. Uh, that uh, have been helping patients with their co-pays and providing some funding. But in the past year, that's really kind of almost dried up. We get the foundation money. Uh, it isn't as, as, uh, as much as it was about a year ago. And so this makes it a challenge because some patients aren't going to get their, their therapies based on their co-pays. Uh, so it is a problem. Our nurse navigator gets on the phone every morning, or not on, online every morning, to try to see what's open. And she's got a waiting list of patients. And uh, so if something does open up, which it does happen, it may not be open one day, but the next day. But if you check that every day, you may be able to get some assistance. And then the manufacturers supply some assistance through programs that they have. So we also provide an educational resource. We have a one-page handout on each therapy, and it includes the clinic phone number to call if you have questions or problems. Uh, the, uh, this is usually given to the patient by the, uh, we have two nurses. We have a nurse navigator and a nurse who runs our clinic. But they give the patient this, uh, this handout sheet. And then immunotherapy may have additional information, like uh, the location of where you're going to have your leukophoresis or how to prepare for the leukophoresis. And then we have a consent form for each one of these therapies that we have the patient sign, and we've worked on those, and you know, basically goes through all the uh, potential risks and complications that you can have from these treatments. So I've talked about barriers for inflammation and implementation. They're available for you in, in your uh, booklet. 
But the take-home message is that practice commitment to treating advanced prostate cancer is essential. You need to invest the time and effort in identifying the physician, nurse, and administrative champions, and develop a plan and assemble your multidisciplinary team. I think that's really key. Uh, and you need to implement the plan that you develop. So the ultimate goal is placing the care of the patient in the hands of the providers who are best qualified to treat advanced prostate cancer. So carpe diem, seize the day. There are new challenges, new therapies, new opportunities, and urologists can and are playing a greater role in the care of patients with MCRPC. Thank you. The second topic, biomarkers for advanced prostate cancer ready for prime time, presented by Dr. Daniel Lin. Okay, perfect. So um, we're going to go from something very practical to a little bit more theoretical. I mean, I'll be really transparent. This next talk will be about biomarkers for advanced prostate cancer and is it ready for prime time. I think we've touched on a few of these um, themes over the past few talks and throughout the morning and through some of the clinical trials. And again, uh, all our software pre prepared most of this. I'll just present the, the next uh, upcoming steps, I think, as far as trying to find which patients are best for which treatments. So again, the title of this session is patient selection. And I think that, again, some of the themes that we'll have in this talk will be purely about patient selection um, and how to optimize our therapies. So the first is germline. So uh, we were chatting at the break about there's germline, in other words, what you inherit from your parents or what the patient inherits from his parents. And then there's somatic, so the tumor mutations that are occurring uh, in real time and actually tumor tissue. So there's germline that's inherited, somatic in the tumor itself. And I'll first start with germline. Uh, germline genetics as a biomarker of prostate cancer risk, and this is data from multiple groups and people that, that have, have spoke today, and it was really led by Colin Pritchard and Pete Nelson at the University of Washington, where I am. It was in a New England Journal. It was a very, very uh, well-cited article now. And the point here is they looked at men with metastatic prostate cancer, and they merely looked at their germline mutations, and they found that of men that have metastatic prostate cancer, just all comers, there was about 12% that had germline mutations in the so-called DNA repair gene mutations. So these are the BRCA genes, uh, it's, and they're listed right here. And the most common one is BRCA2, which is about 6%. But then there's BRCA1, CHECK2, ATM, and there's a, there's a big list of them. And all these are involved in the process of DNA repair. And this was somewhat of a, a revolutionary finding that, oh, these mutations are there, first of all. And what can we do to capitalize on that, which I'll present in a few slides. It is known that uh, it's about double or almost triple of what we would expect in men with newly diagnosed localized prostate cancer, and that's more like 5%. And what's very interesting is we found these mutations in these men who did not have a family history of BRCA or a family history of breast cancer or a family history of other things. So these mutations are there, and they're probably really relevant. It's been really taken on to the next level, looking at actually how many mutations within the BRCA uh, gene itself, the so-called polygenic risk score. So one can look at, uh, at, at the dark line in the middle there, that as men age, if they have a BRCA2 polygenic risk score in there, that their chance uh, at age 70 of having a cancer might be 20, 25, or maybe 30 percent. That's, that's pretty high. But it's not only high if you're having cancer, but it's, it's very aggressive cancer. It has a high-grade cancer. It's oftentimes fatal prostate cancer. So why are they important? Well, they're listed here basically three reasons. Number one, 
if we know a man has a mutation, we should screen them probably differently. And we're doing studies on that right now. We know that, as, I, as it's written here, men with BRCA2 mutations or DNA damage mutations have poor prognosis, earlier onset of prostate cancer, aggressive prostate cancer, so we should screen those men aggressively. In fact, we're thinking that men that have BRCA2 mutations, maybe we should, if their PSA is even two, or, or even, maybe even less than that, depending on their age, we should really consider a biopsy. So that's coming down, down the pike, and you'll see that in coming years, I'm sure. The second, which is really important, I'll show you some data later, is that men that have these mutations and certain mutations really are susceptible to, to drugs that we wouldn't normally treat men with, with prostate cancer, like platinum, okay? And then the last one is, is genetic counseling, and, and maybe the, the buzzword that we have is cascade testing. So a man that has a BRCA mutation, the cascade would be his sons, his brothers, his, his progeny, his daughters. So that's cascade testing to say if you have a mutation in, uh, in a man, all, the family members really need to be, be looked at for cascade testing, um, and that has, has great impact. So that's germline, and we're going to kind of switch to maybe other transcript uh, biomarkers within the tumor itself. Um, and they're really um, maybe markers for response to hormonal therapy, which we've used for, for decades, as I said. We know this, this is data showing that the combination of hormonal therapy plus radiation is better than radiation therapy alone. We've known that for many, many years, particularly in high-risk localized prostate cancer. I think that's the BOLA article. But now um, Felix Fang and many others have actually looked at the tumor and said, is there a signature in there of people that respond to hormones better? And there really is. There's a so-called luminal and basal subtyping. Look at the tumor and we can say, which tumors might respond to hormonal therapy more or less? And there's a so-called luminal B signature, and then there's the non-luminal B signature. But if you look at the luminal B signature, they respond to ADT, and this is metastasis on this axis. They, they actually have a better response to the hormonal therapy than, than, uh, than without. And again, here you see that metastasis, this is luminal B, metastasis rate might be 50% and it drops down uh, well, well in the 30s uh, uh, with, with hormonal therapy if you had that specific thing in, in a luminal B signature in the tumor. So again, we can actually now look at tumor tissue and say who's going to respond to hormonal therapy. They have a chemotherapy signature that they're working on and it'll be really exciting. What about imaging as a biomarker? I mean, we talked about imaging quite a bit. Um, it's probably pretty clear that that uh, local therapy failure, in other words, you have patients, again, as, as urologists, you know, operate on them, you seem like you get it all, but they have a recurrence, and very likely, of course, they have micrometastatic disease. So many of our local failures are simply because we didn't know that there was a lymph node or a bone met that we could have seen earlier if we could possibly image it. You know, a CT scan, I'm sure you all know this, is one centimeter tumor or one cc tumor can see, but you know, a one cc tumor has a billion cells. I mean, how can we get an imaging modality that can maybe find a half a billion cells or something like that, which we have, actually. And I'll show you a couple, couple just quick examples. And again, I know that all of you know this, but this is an example of PSMA PET imaging. Um, and uh, the panel there, uh, let's say C and D on the bottom here, are showing maybe little lymph nodes that look somewhat suspicious, maybe not. They're certainly less than one centimeter on axial imaging. But if you do PSMA staining, they are really uh, lighting up with PSMA, showing that they are actually expressing uh, the prostate-specific membrane antigen, showing that they are prostate cancer. 
Many of you in this room are using the Aximin, the flucyclovine uh, PET scan, it's FDA approved. And again, you might see a CT scan here in panel C that looks like there, it, it does look abnormal slightly. There's a slightly enlarged uh, inguinal or, or, or maybe, maybe a, a, a distal uh, fem, um, inguinal or common iliac, or sorry, distal, distal iliac, external iliac, but it's not. When you look at the flucyclovine on panel A, it's lighting up very hot. So we know that's a prostate cancer metastasis. Um, choline is, has been around for longer than uh, really either of those two in, in Europe in particular. And again, showing a very similar type of uh, uh, display showing that uh, if one looks at by plain imaging, CT imaging or technetium bone scan, there's nothing lighting up. However, by choline, you can see lighting either in the prostate itself or in the bone. Um, many, many think that as the top line there says that PSMA is probably more sensitive than choline. And now that we have flucyclovine that's widely available, PSMA I think will be the next to be fairly widely available. Choline is still used in certain places um, in the country and the world. How will those images play out to therapeutics? So we think that these imaging, this molecular imaging, will take patients that we thought were localized and turn them into metastatic. I, I think that we all realize that. They will certainly be may be eligible for treatments, and they're being uh, these imaging modalities are being uh, laid out in clinical trials now. I mean, uh, I can tell you from the National Clinical Trials Network, the NCTN, there are many trials that are almost mandating having these imaging modalities within their within the clinical trials that are being rolled out right now. So they'll turn patients into different uh, disease states. I'm sure you've seen we've seen this in many forms today, going from localized disease on the left of the, uh, of the slide all the way up to metastatic hormonal, hormone resistant or ADT uh, resistant disease. But again, if you think it's, is it recurrent or is it, has it always been there by imaging? So in other words, we're going to take patients that we thought had rising PSAs but couldn't find any metastasis to all of a sudden saying, oh, no, no, they have metastasis, okay? Or we're going to take men that we think have localized disease but we will do imaging and find overt metastasis, and then of course they'll be eligible for treatments that will be targeted for metastatic disease, which, which we've heard about, you know, index patient uh, one and two. Uh, we also know that metastatic prostate cancer, again, you've seen this, has many different heterogeneous subtypes. So this is, these are patients right here, and these are their subtypes. And you can see no, no one is the same. All these are genes, frequencies of gene mutations, so we know that uh, prostate cancer certainly is by far not a single disease. I'm going to end on a couple things about uh, hormonal therapy because still to this day, I mean, you've heard of enzalutamide, apalutamide, aviraterone, they're all targeting the same thing. We're all targeting the androgen receptor. Um, and, and it's written there, Abby and prednisone at, or enzalutamide are clearly the most important new developments, new therapeutic developments in the last 10 years because it targets the AR. So what, what can we do to capitalize on that and, and look at that more? There is a so-called liquid biopsy, and, and, and again, many of the speakers here have, have their whole research interest in, in uh, liquid biopsies and understanding the circulating tumor cells, because we all know that they're there. And how can we, how can we look at that? Draw a tube of blood. We can get cell-free DNA, circulating tumor cells, exosomes, RNA, and so forth. And from there, since we're talking about the AR, we can look at things like uh, again, what Dr. Lee and Dr. Chowdhury and others have already talked about, AR amplifications, mutations, splice variants. 
I won't go to, into uh, the exact biology of these, but if we find these modifications in the androgen receptor, do they mean anything? Well, they, they actually do. And this is a, 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 a paper that was put out in New England Journal again many years ago now. But it, it shows something fairly fascinating. If you have a patient that has a mutation in the AR, so-called ARV7, that means these yellow ones have, have a mutation in the AR and the, and the blue ones don't, have a particular mutation in the AR, and you give them enzalutamide or you give them abiraterone, you can see that they don't respond as well as if they did not have that mutation. So again, if, if the AR is mutated and you're using a drug that's hitting or trying to manipulate the AR, it's not going to work as well. And this has been followed up in multiple other venues. This is by Howard Chair and others. This was published more recently uh, in, in European Urology. The top here, uh, again, yellow is having the mutation and blue is not. The first observation is there weren't that many yellows. So, but if they had a yellow and they were treated with some form of androgen uh, regulated, uh, like an AR inhibitor, that they didn't really respond really well if they had that mutation. Down here, interestingly, is the taxanes. So if they were treated with a taxane and they were yellow, they, and remember, a taxane does not necessarily inhibit uh, the androgen, doesn't really target specifically the androgen receptor, they had a pretty good, decent response. Okay, so this was a little bit arguing for use of taxanes or chemotherapy or some other form of therapy than AR-directed therapy if you have a mutation in your AR, in your patient's AR. Not only that, this was somewhat provocative, low numbers of patients, yet um, I, I still think it's interesting is that the, you can take a patient that you uh, find their blood and you say, oh, there's this variant AR, and you give them a drug and it might change to no variant. And so, um, and usually it's with taxane. So you can see here, these are variant. They remain the variant positive versus reverting to a negative. Again, a favorable, we think, favorable subgroup. But if you look at all the AR drugs, no reversions. But if you look at the taxanes, at least there are some reversions, okay? And so, uh, again, that's just provocative, hypothesis generating, and where many are looking into this uh, on a more detailed level. Not only do we know about that one variant, that variant seven, but we know that within the AR, again, you heard from other speakers, there are all these little snips and mutations, these little polymorphisms. And there are many of them, actually, if, you, if they looked at at uh, over 2,000 prostate cancer patients, a third of them had these little snip, little variants, okay? At, at some, usually single digits, but they're there. And you add them all up, and it's a third of the patients have these little mutations in the AR, and they actually have a, have a they could have a therapeutic implication, such as, uh, like this variant, it's called uh, L702H, it's actually activated by steroids or there's one that's activated by biclutamide or, or activated by estrogens or even activated by the newer antiandrogens. This one has been studied a fair amount, F877L. And so we have to look at these, particularly with large subgroups of patients and see where they're gonna really play out within the world of clinical trials first. This just shows that one example. This was again, I think 97 patients treated with abiraterone and those that had aberrancies in their AR clearly did much worse than overall survival here, okay? So they, they, they would survive a year compared to uh, almost three years if their AR was normal and they were treated with abiraterone. So these re really play a role. They're not just sort of too, it's theoretical now, but I think that they do play a role. We gotta think beyond the AR though. I mean, 
there's no doubt that the, uh, that androgen axis is really the, the cognate axis uh, for prostate cancer. But let's think beyond that. And again, you've heard a fair amount of it today already. Thinking beyond the AR, what about targeted therapy like the DNA repair, which I started the talk out with, mismatch repair, which you heard from multiple speakers already, P10, and so forth. So here's a couple things. Remember, there's this new DNA damage repair defects. They're much more common than we thought. Um, at least 12% of all men with metastatic prostate cancer, maybe up to 20% of men. And they're very responsive to drugs like Olaparib. Um, Dr. Chowdhury showed this before. It's a very famous paper in the England Journal where they said uh, if, a, if a man has these mutations in their DNA damage, they're very susceptible to this drug, Olaparib. And if you look at it, if they had that mutation, their radiologic progression-free survival was much more than if they didn't. And same way, overall survival was basically double, uh, from 7.5 to almost 14 uh, months uh, on an overall survival. So there's no doubt that that it plays in a role to give uh, this drug called Olaparib. What's even more interesting, and this is a, a, a work from our group at the University of Washington, showing that they're also very susceptible to just platinum platinum drugs, carboplatinum drugs. So this is, these are three examples of patients that had uh, um, uh, metastatic castrate-resistant disease, resistant to docetaxel, abiraterone, and enzalutamide, and then just with the addition of carboplatin alone, uh, the PSA went from over 500 down to almost undetectable range. And of course, as it went back up again, a re-challenge with docetaxel plus, but pl plus platinum. And again, this is in a patient that had a BRCA2 mutation. And there's other examples here. Here's a, probably a more typical example of a patient that had a very pretty durable response to not only abiraterone but enzalutamide, became resistant even to docetaxel, but with a simple addition of carboplatin, uh, fell quite precipitously. And again, because as a DNA damage mutation makes it very susceptible. So this is choosing your patients and who to, who to, who to treat with what drug. This is actually in the NCCN guidelines now. If you look at the NCCN guidelines, they say a man diagnosed with high-risk localized disease, these are our patients walking in the door, at least in 9, 10, bulky, PSAs of 50. The recommendation is consider gen genetic testing. Also in the guidelines is man with metastatic disease and a CRPC, metastatic CRPC, consider genetic testing. Over lunch, the faculty, we were discussing about how to do that on a very uh, practical level. P10 has been around for a long time. Um, and I think it's never gone away. I think that there's still some questions about it. And I'll just say on this slide, uh, P10 loss, if you look at P10 loss versus no P10 loss and giving uh, a new uh, therapeutics with and without abiraterone, clearly P10 loss looks like uh, it responded better to some of the newer agents. So again, it's just a proof of principle that we can do a very simple test. And P10 is, uh, I think, Dr. Lee was saying it's very easy. IHC, uh, your pathologists can do this um, pretty, pretty easily now. I think I'm going to end with just a couple slides on immunotherapy. Um, this was brought out before that uh, PEMBRA was awarded accelerated approval uh, in the high microsatellite instability population, so the DNA mismatch repair. And you might not think of it immediately as Lynch syndrome. You might think colon cancer and otherwise. But it's actually in metastatic prostate cancer at a high, high level. If you look at uh, high mutational load here, as well as microsatellite instability, these, these, uh, these defects in uh, mismatch repair happens actually fairly frequently. We should be thinking about that. And not only that, it might be very responsive to pembrolizumab. So uh, Dr. Chowdhury showed these results from Julie Graff. 
at uh, OHSU, and this is just a few of the patients. He showed a much better slide of all the patients, but showing that patients were, were, were resistant and going from PSAs of 70 down to less than one uh, with pembrolizumab and enzalutamide. Now, this is, this is MSI, uh, microcellular instability present, but even in those that were absent, there were some responses. This one, you know, a PSA of 2,500 to uh, undetectable uh, with Pembro. So there is something here. Uh, there's still much work to be done. And the last is PSMA. So uh, again, we showed a little bit about this, but I'll just show a couple more. We all know that PSMA binds molecules being linked to therapeutic agents, and, and we showed, showed actinium, lutetium, and others. Um, uh, tagging PSMA to a therapeutic molecule, and this is a, a German study that just showed uh, good responses. These are the waterfall plots. These are, again, men that were advanced, resistant of traditional therapy, getting this PSMA, showing uh, very good responses, not only the first cycle, but the second cycle. And now there's a, a very big, big study called the VISION trial. It's an international uh, trial of lutetium PSMA uh, for patients that have already progressed through at least one antiandrogen, and at least one taxane. So these are uh, basically index patients five, probably not six. So that's all I have on biomarkers. Um, there's, again, I can say it's kind of a much more theoretical talk, but it's coming. And uh, not only that, it's on the guidelines. So I think we all ought to know that. They're increasingly playing roles in all aspects, um, not only diagnostics, but then therapeutics, the selection of drugs, and imaging, I think, will really uh, continue to play a role in finding who is necessarily recurrent or metastatic. And then lastly, we can look at circulating tumor cells. Hopefully one of these days we can just draw a tube of blood and tell you what drug to give. The next talk, Acute and Chronic Pain Management in CRPZ, presented by Dr. Russell Smallwitz. So uh, these are largely slides that were uh, already prepared uh, in, from uh, other slide decks, and so I want to give credit there. Th the main objective of this talk, which is about pain management, is to, one, understand the different types of pain. Um, two is to feel more comfortable um, integrating long and short-acting opiates and understanding the different delivery methods. And I think that's probably the, the, the main thrust, is understanding what opiates to use and when and how to integrate them. And then understanding a little bit that there's a multidisciplinary effort here. So pain management um, really should start off with a slide saying that it's going to need uh, complementary treatment approaches. Um, in order to get the best out of, uh, out of your therapy. So pharmacotherapy is what we're going to spend the majority of the talk um, dealing with, but not to overlook psychological support, complementary and alternative medicine, physical therapy. These can all be other adjunctive therapies um, that you should refer your patients for. So everybody knows what pain is. I'm not going to go through that. Um, that being said, pain is what people think it is to each individual. Um, there's no objective way to measure it. And, and so ultimately, we have to believe the patient, take their word on it, unless they give us a really wrong, a strong reason to, to, to doubt um, that they are truly in pain. So just more to that point, not everybody will have the same amount of pain for the same amount of disease. And just because it's a small tumor and they, they say they have a lot of pain, you know, you should really take, take their word for it. 
So in addition to, you know, the pain from pain, there's consequences. So it's really de demoralizing and debilitating over time. Loss of employment and income is huge. Uh, depression, and, uh, isolation, um, and family dysfunction. So there are other uh, extra physical considerations. So yeah, this pain is complicated, and that's why we have sometimes a hard time uh, managing it. But not only do you have the injury and the inflammation, but you have all sorts of inflammatory cytokines and nerves and uh, how it gets integrated in this central nervous system. It's really very, very complicated. So in prostate cancer, we've, we've known pain was a big deal for a long time, and in fact, our first chemotherapy to get FDA approved for prostate cancer uh, was mitoxantrone, and it was solely approved on palliative care and pain improvement. So if you look at this study, it was randomized mitoxantrone uh, plus prednisone versus prednisone alone, um, and I'll just say that I was a, I was a data manager in an oncology practice before going to medical school when this study was done, so I sort of have a fondness for this study, um, or not because of all the queries, even as a data manager. Um, in any case, there was a six months improvement in time before deterioration of pain that was quite meaningful and led to the FDA approval of mitoxantrone. More recently, we heard today, radium-223, not only does it improve uh, survival, which mitoxantrone uh, did not, but it also improves time before you need uh, uh, radiation, external beam radiation for painful metastasis, or uh, in the in the about 50 percent of the patients on the trial that were uh, in pain, that the time to uh, escalation of opiates was significantly. Uh, de delayed if you in the in the radium arm, so these are uh, endpoints that are not just um, that are not just clinically meaningful, but they're actually getting incorporated in our clinical trials and leading to regulatory approvals. So, in terms of the etiology of pain, by far the biggest um, contributor is direct tumor involvement, and you can obviously understand how that would be. There are much rarer in prostate cancer, uh, perineoplastic uh, syndromes. Um, and then, you know, let's not overlook that we cause pain. And there are things that we do to patients that are, um, that cause discomfort. So this table sort of characterizes the different types of pain. The, the one that we see the most of is a somatic pain. This is constant aching. But patients can usually point to it. The best example in our world would be a bone metastasis. Where do you hurt? I hurt right here. Um, and I can't get it to go away. Um, uh, the visceral pain from organs um, happens in our patients if they have uh, retroperitoneal lymph nodes that are starting to involve nerves and things of that nature, that you have this aching pain, but you can't really uh, localize it. And then neuropathic pain. Uh, can happen both from the chemotherapy that we give in patients who get neuropathy, but also from involvement in nerve roots. So we talked about this. The neuropathic is, is tough because it's, it can be burning. Um, you can have paresthesias, and it doesn't necessarily respond to the same types of medication. So let's get more granular with, with pain management. So uh, acute pain. There's a, an insult uh, or identifiable cause. Chronic pain, uh, persistent, recurrent pain, 
beyond the, the just one-time insult. And for our patients, chronic pain is usually the, the, uh, the biggest issue. And then on top of chronic pain, you can have breakthrough pain, which is an exacerbation or uh, a worsening of the uh, transient worsening of, of, of a baseline chronic pain. I'm not going to go through these. Uh, I'll go through these quickly. These pre predated our ARS, but I, I do want to use this case as sort of an example of pain management as we go through. So, 57-year-old man basically has a metastatic prostate cancer to his bones and a lot of pain he presents to the hospital. Um, so in terms of controlling the pain, there are multiple different options, acetaminophen, a naproxen anti-inflammatory, uh, opiate PCA, a patient-controlled uh, device, um, uh, a low-potency hydrocodone, or a, a methadone, which we'll get to. So and a couple of slides will go through that answer a little bit in a more granular detail. So this, that patient sort of characterizes or epitomizes what we typically see in patients with prostate cancer. They have chronic, persistent pain, and then on top of that, they'll have these spikes of breakthrough pain. Um, what we want to do is cover them ultimately with something that takes around the clock and then give them medications for their breakthrough pain. You want to avoid up here, which is sleepy time over medication, drowsiness, and ultimately lethality if, if patients really overdose. So on top of chronic pain, breakthrough pain is very important. So understanding how to integrate a short and long-acting pain medicine is key. Over half patients with metastatic prostate cancer, uh, with metastatic cancer will, will have breakthrough pain on top of chronic pain. So obviously there are different types of, of breakthrough pain, incidental pain. Um, sure, I, I tripped and I fell and that made everything worse. But this is, I would say, um, one of the, mo the more common is that I don't know why, it just started to hurt me more and, the, and the, the, the pain medicine I was on just wasn't cutting it. And then this is a particular type, um, this end of dose failure, this is, and this we have to manage slightly differently, and so we'll, we'll talk about that, but pain due to basically drop in the, in the drug level. So if a drug you give every 12 hours and a patient says, oh, I'm okay for the first seven, but at hour eight, I'm in excruciating pain again, uh, that's not necessarily a, a, this type of breakthrough. It's more that they're metabolizing it, they're clearing it, the 12 hours isn't 12 hours for them. So the World Health Organization has, has tiers of pain and tiers of pain medication, uh, and it's pretty straightforward. So there are non-opiate pain medicines, uh, acetaminophen being the lowest potency, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, uh, and then it escalates into low-potency opioids and then to higher-potency opioids. And we'll go through these in a little bit of detail. In addition, uh, we'll also go through there are adjuvant, so not necessarily treating the pain, but treating the syndromes around the pain or helping with the pain medicines that we can go through. So uh, drug treatments, I want to spend a, a few, uh, so, so the non-opiates, 
NSAIDs, I think, are the most useful non-opiate medications that we give to our patients with cancer-related pain, and they're probably underutilized. So for patients who have chronic bone pain, there's a fair amount of um, inflammation associated with that bone pain, and uh, giving them 600 or 800 milligrams of ibuprofen every eight hours, I find to be quite helpful as an entry-level non-opiate um, uh, uh, pain medication. Tramadol, which is also known as the brand name Ultram, is really complicated. It's listed under the non-opiate, but it's actually a little bit of an opiate and a little bit of a non-opiate. It's maybe 1 to 10 or 1 to 15 in terms of the opiate potency compared to morphine, but it also has serotonergic properties uh, as, as well as nor noradrenergic properties and, and, and is not nearly as, uh, doesn't have the same toxicity as, as the opioids, which we'll get to. So if I were escalating, I usually start here, and then add here, and then add here. In terms of the adjuvants, so um, there are multiple different medications that you can use and you should use in addition to the pain medicines. I think antidepressants are underutilized in our patient population because of the stigma associated with depression and antidepressant and antidepressants in general. So if you actually sit down and talk with your patient and ask them, do they still, do they have a good quality of life? Do they enjoy the things they used to enjoy? Do they find that they uh, don't uh, get enjoyment out of life or, or out of foods, things like that? More of our patients will actually screen positive for some element of depression, especially if they're in a lot of pain. So using an antidepressant can, can not only help with their depression, but also help with their pain. There are certain other medicines like gabapentin that can be helpful adjuncts, especially for neuropathic pain. And I would actually put medicinal cannabis in this sort of adjuvant category. Um, we don't prescribe it, uh, but I have many patients who have a medicinal cannabis card uh, where it's legal in, in Illinois and that find that the, the amount of pain medicine they need goes from, uh, you know, this to this with um, medicinal cannabis. So um, in the states where it is legal, it's, uh, I would say, worth discussing. So one thing that I do want to talk about, and we'll spend a few uh, minutes uh, or a few slides talking about it, is the difference between physical dependence and addiction. Many of our patients will say, I don't want to be on an opiate because there's an opiate epidemic and I don't want to get hooked. Uh, that's something that we hear all of the time. Um, and if, what I tell my patients is if they have legitimate pain, then they aren't, they aren't going to be abusive of their pain medicine. That doesn't mean that they won't become physically dependent on it, such that it will be hard to wean off should their pain go away or that they might need higher doses over time, but it, it's, it's different. So physical dependent is, you, you can have an abstinence syndrome, meaning that if you are on morphine every day for six months and then stop, you're gonna withdraw. Uh, but addiction is, is, is a different phenomenon, loss of control, compulsive use, um, and preoccupation with the medication. So, Obviously, opiates, analgesia, and ang relief of anxiety are the, are the good things. There are all sorts of side effects, and the ones that we uh, need to know about, 
Uh, obviously, nausea, um, constipation, urinary retention is a big side effect that in our population can be a major issue with, with opiates. Um, confusion, mental status changes, especially in the elderly population. Um, some things that might be good, cough suppression if they have a bad, if they have lung metastases, for example, but then other, especially decreased bowel motility that are issues. Um, the key principles in opiate management for patients with, with really any kind of pain, but especially cancer pain, is that our goal should be the minimum effective analgesic concentration. So we, our goal should be giving them enough pain medicine so that their pain is a three, four tolerable, they can participate. You know, the best thing to do is to talk to your patient and ask them what they think their pain level would be, is, and where they would like it to be. But the goal usually isn't for them to be realistically pain-free, because that will make them super-duper sleepy in most instances. So, but we want the minimum effective amount in order to achieve their goals. The key principles is that depending on the drugs, these levels will fluctuate and we have to understand the drugs we're using, the onset and the duration of the medications appropriately. So this is, this is in, your, in your slide so you can use it as a, a reference, but basically the key is that um, morphine, for example, typically lasts three hours or so for the immediate release. The stain re sustained release is supposed to last 12 hours, but there are large ranges um, in these, whereas, you know, for methadone, for example, the range can be the eight hours to 59 hours. So you can get accumulation in your system and make, that makes methadone a very challenging drug to use in everyday life because you can get this huge range of, of half-life. This is, a, a, I think, a, a, a very helpful conversion table. So when you're looking to convert people, as we'll do with this case, um, understanding that, first of all, going from intravenous to oral, there's usually a step up, meaning that if they're on five milligrams of IV and you want the equivalent, it's about three times. And also, if you're going changing potency, let's say morphine isn't holding them and you want to go to um, hydromorphone, Dilaudid, you have to understand that it's a much more potent drug. And so um, there are different conversions. So in this patient who comes in with acute pain that's debilitating and they're going to be admitted, a PCA, a patient-controlled device, is quite helpful. The way these work is that there's a basal rate that delivers morphine intravenously, and then the patient pushes and triggers when they need it. So we start that, and he describes his pain is mostly controlled um, at one milligram per hour of morphine, and, but that he initiated the bolus doses of one milligram eight times over the 24 hours. So the question is, what do we do now? So they're using it, they're getting good relief, but they're needing it every few hours, every three hours, essentially, they're, they're having breakthrough pain. So this is inadequate baseline control. So the key here is because there's inadequate baseline control, 
before you titrate and give, convert to orals or send them home, you really may need to make sure that their baseline control is there. So in this person, they go, to, you go up, and they only need three episodes over the next 24 hours. So now you're sort of thinking, this might be a time to convert to oral. So of these choices, forgetting about the, the prostate cancer side, I mentioned methadone is really ch challenging, and, and I don't use it myself because of all the challenges. But if you think about the morphine, if they're at 1.3 milligrams, and you have to do some math, but if they're getting that, that's basically four milligrams orally an hour, 24 hours, it's you know 90 or so milligrams. You can start with 30, and you should start on the slightly lower end, but that itself might not hold them. So in fact, that's what happens here. You start with 30, um, and that isn't quite cutting it because they're still needing a, quite a lot of breakthrough pain. And the bottom line is that after that, you're at the right dose, which is probably 45 milligrams twice a day, in addition to oral morphine for breakthrough pain. And the key, one of the key principles is that for this patient, they're going to go home on a long-acting pain medicine that they take on a schedule every 12 hours, and in addition, a short-acting pain medicine. So we know these opiate side effects. I mentioned them earlier. What I do want to go through is that the, any time that you're starting patient on an opiate, you have to start them on a bowel regimen. Do not start one without starting the other, ever. Uh, what I typically do is give them not just a stool softener, but a uh, low-potency stimulant laxative. So I usually give them Senecots or, or the, the over-the-counter and have them take it twice a day. And as you get patients who are on long-acting, around-the-clock opiates, you're more than likely going to need the addition of um, a hyperosmotic or osmotic like um, polyethylene glycol or uh, milk of magnesia in addition. From there, you can escalate to a prescription like lactulose. What you want to try to avoid is having to need enemas and other things and getting into trouble. So staying ahead of constipation is key. So methylnaltrexone, if you do get into, uh, you have somebody who's got recalcitrant constipation, there is an injectable uh, agent called uh, methylnaltrexone that blocks the mu opioid receptors in the gut. Um, and uh, there are, uh, this basically shows that you have more bowel movements if you take methylnaltrexone. Um, that being said, it's not something that you can, um, First of all, it's, in, it's injection, and second of all, it's, um, you have to have a, there are, it's expensive, so you're going to have to do prior authorizations, and they usually, you usually have to try the other things first. So fentanyl, many of you guys are aware that there's a transdermal opiate path, patch called Dergesic or, or, or a fentanyl patch. There are a couple things that you need to know about these patches. Um, one is that it takes a little while several hours, in fact, for the drug to get up to concentration. And the other thing is that if you remove the patch, there's a lot of drugs still under the skin. 
And so that will remain there. So if you're transitioning from one to another, know that you can't just put on the patch and stop the other thing. And if you're going from the patch to something else, you need to um, have a, an awareness that it's going to be about a day before the fentanyl really goes out of the system. I personally only use a fentanyl patch in patients who are unable to tolerate uh, PO uh, pills because I find that it's much more difficult to titrate up and down on the fly um, compared to the other medications. So I, I mentioned methadone. Methadone is, the good thing about methadone is it's inexpensive and it's really long acting and it doesn't give you euphoria. So in patients who you're worried about um, some of the you that they, they might have some um, addiction, not just dependence, and um, are, are having taking advantage of the euphoria aspect of it. Um, that this is where methadone can be quite helpful, or in some patients who just can't afford the long-acting morphine, methadone can be helpful. I don't usually do this by myself. I usually ask our palliative care specialists because it can get dicey with uh, accumulation over time. So I, I don't want to give a talk about pain medicine without un, uh, us at least touching on the fact that there's an opiate epidemic. We all know this by now. Um, drug overdoses are a huge cause of death. What, what this graph shows is that prescription opiate use as the first opiate is the increasing cause uh, or uh, incident um, opiate for patients who have uh, opiate addiction. Be aware of this and talk to your patients about the fact that we're using it for cause and, again, use the minimal dose in order to achieve pain medicine, analgesia. So uh, this is, as I said, a multidisciplinary approach. It's really important that you use collaborators where needed. Uh, um, if, you, if you're trying something and it's, you're just not making headroom, call on palliative care specialists call on medical oncologists, as we often see a lot more of this, and, and, and get help where needed. Um, I, um, I do want to mention, it's, it's not on here, but I, I mentioned that, the, that there are some patients who, at eight hours of a 12-hour medication, they are having more pain again. So there are times those patients, I give it every, they're long-acting morphine every eight hours instead of every 12. So you can, Every patient in front of you is going to be a little bit different about their metabolism, about their use, um, and uh, so, but understanding what you should expect with these medications will help you. So there's lots of different therapeutics that you can employ to help patients with pain. Uh, it's really important to use a stepwise and graded approach that you feel comfortable with. Start with a non-steroidal or, or acetaminophen, then work your way up. Um, I personally don't use combination medications, so you know medications like uh, um, like Vicodin that are hydrocodone and acetaminophen. Um, I don't like because you're maxed out with an amount of acetaminophen you can give in the 24 hours, and I find it to 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 make it cleaner. But whatever works for you, where you are most comfortable managing the the escalation and the side effects, develop a, a pattern in that way, but really try to follow a stepwise approach. Um, and 
work with your patients, have a nurse navigator that can check in on them. How is your pain today? We just made an adjustment. How are things going it is critical. And today's final topic, end of life issues in CRPC patients and their families. Presented again by Dr. Russell Smallwitz. Um, as you guys are taking, uh, taking ownership uh, of, of this disease, and you should be aware of end-of-life issues. You should be comfortable on some level with end-of-life issues. And there's going to be very little data on this presentation as there was before. You guys got a lot of data. So this is really more of uh, a conceptual talk. Here's data. No. Um, there are nomograms. We can try to guess what prognosis are, but we're really, really bad at it. Even when we have a nomogram, I, I think we're pretty inaccurate. Uh, it's not easy. Uh, we have a tendency to be overly optimistic, the data would show. Um, but it's really important that we try to be realistic with the patient in front of us. The main conceptual framework I want to employ with this talk is that there isn't disease-directed therapies and then death and bereavement, but there's an integration of palliative care from diagnosis, especially in patients with aggressive disease, through the entire spectrum of their illness. And there's an interplay between the disease-directed therapy and the palliative care. Ultimately, for patients with metastatic disease, this is a palliative uh, therapeutic. Even our disease-directed therapies are palliative. So understanding that there's really an interplay and that there's not just one or the other. So uh, this, I get asked this question at nearly every clinic. I got asked twice yesterday, how am I going to die from this disease? What's going to happen to me? And I, I tell patients that there's two or three different paths, and you all see this, but it's important to stress this. There are the smoldering path. So I would say that this is probably the most common. This is patients who get progressive fatigue. They sleep more. Uh, they feel just lousy. Um, they're not on a lot of pain medicines, but they don't eat, they don't sleep, and then they don't eat, and then they don't sleep, and that sort of feeds forward, and, and then they don't have enough energy to take care of their daily living, and eventually they, they pass from that. Progressive bone pain and morbidity from, um, from, from cancer-related pain is another pathway for our prostate cancer patients. Sometimes there's a combination of one or two. I don't want to say that they're mutually exclusive, uh, but this is a sort of separate physiology, if you will, uh, high-volume bone metastases that, um, and morbidity from that. And then we see this as well, complication-related mortality, morbidity and mortality. I saw a patient yesterday who had disease involving his colon, and he had bilateral nephro-neph tubes and a suprapubic, because those weren't working. I mean, these are, the, these are complications that eventually, for this patient, might cause his demise. So if your patient wants to guess on prognosis, I think a rough estimate would be that how much time they spend in bed is really very prognostic and powerful. If, if, uh, even if they have advanced disease, if they're up and about a lot, of the, a lot of the time of the day, so these are for patients who have advanced disease and they're transitioning, for example. I'm getting paged. So sorry. Um, 
I haven't gotten paged in four days, but of course I get paged the 20 minutes I remember right here. Um, if they're in bed a lot, their death is very close. So even when patients that I have and they have in hospice, I say get up and about. The more time you spend out of bed, the longer you'll be alive. There are separate entities here. Palliative care, end of life, hospice, they're not the same, and we're gonna go through those differences. So palliative care is specialized medical care for people with serious illness, uh, regardless of the diagnosis. The goal is quality of life for the patient and the family, and to work with them and a team to offer an extra layer of support. It can be provided and should be provided along with curative or disease-directed therapy. So what is hospice? Hospice is a model through which patients who are at the end of life can get palliative care essentially at home or in an inpatient setting. Hospice, you do not have disease-directed aggressive therapy, whereas in palliative care, you can and, and often do. Palliative care should be delivered and can be delivered at all stages of disease. For hospice eligibility, it is only the last six months of life. Palliative care is doctor visits or nurse home nursing visits and a, a little bit more subject to insurance. Hospice is not. Um, it's a right for all patients, essentially. Quality of life at the end of life is the key for hospice. And palliative care uh, helps us relieve suffering and improve quality of life throughout their course of illness. What do we know about hospice use in prostate cancer? So we know that statistically we refer too late and it's shorter duration in hospice than others. Uh, the, we use it less frequently, although this is improving. Um, we don't have a lot of data on hospice use in prostate cancer and I think a lot of that is because often these patients have fragmentation of their care. They have care that is with um, urology, they have care that's with medical oncology, with radiation oncology, and so we don't have the, the best data and sometimes that's one of the problems of why we're not referring. So we often have hesitation about referring to hospice. It's too early, wait a second, I can still give apalutamide now, they've gotten enzalutamide, they've gotten abiraterone, well I still got more drugs I can give them um, that I should try. You don't want uh, re, you know, honestly, we, we sometimes don't, we don't want to give the impression that we've given up on our patients. And then lastly, sometimes we just don't know how to bring it up. So there's no easy way I can tell you this, so I'm sending you to someone who can. So uh, this is what we'd like to avoid. I, on the medical oncology side, um, we do get patients referred at the end of life and I, it's really important for all of you who are taking care of advanced cancer patients to be comfortable with these discussions. They're not a comfortable discussion, but to be comfortable having these to some degree. So the basic principle is that all of us, all clinicians, should be competent in the general basics of palliative care. We talked about pain management and the symptoms uh, uh, around cancer. Uh, that you should have basic ability to treat and manage depression and anxiety that comes with advanced illness. 
and you should be able to have basic discussions about prognosis, goals of care, and code status. One of the main uh, uh, important points that I want to make is that this discussion should not happen at the very end only. Having a discussion that is iterative at every major decision about treatment is the best way for you and your patient and their family to all be on the same page and to be comfortable with end-of-life goals and with general goals of care. There is a palliative care consult that can be the next level. So for patients who have very complicated pain or very complicated symptoms, these palliative care uh, experts can be very, very helpful. They can help with many of the other symptoms that are harder for us to tie down. Agitation, delirium, depression, balancing the opiate-induced fatigue and the fatigue from the cancer, uh, these things can get very challenging for us and we often need help. Understanding the social dynamics, the finances, uh, interpersonal relationships. Sometimes patients don't want to stop getting treatment because they're afraid that they're going to leave their family without somebody. Uh, all of these things we sometimes don't get into and they can help. Um, and there's an entire spiritual side which many of us don't, don't feel comfortable with and don't have the expertise of dealing with. So the idea is that the consult is help, will help us align the care with the patient's preferences and they will, can also help with advanced care planning, advanced directives, legacy work, um, and so forth. As I mentioned, it can start and should start early in the care of our patients. Even in pati patients with metastatic prostate cancer, Patients with castration-resistant disease have three to five years. Even patients with metastatic disease have five years. This is a terminal illness. On top of that, there are tertiary care that can even uh, help even further, and this is pretty self-explanatory. When things get hairy, you ha should know where your assistance can be. The important take-home is that when you involve palliative care, it should be co-management that you and the uh, you as the primary oncologist and the palliative care specialist should work together um, to uh, come uh, have a, a plan of care. So ASCO uh, suggests that any patient with metastatic cancer should have integration of palliative care with cancer-directed care, and it should be considered early. Is it important for prostate cancer? Uh, um, for, of, of course it is. There's lots of symptoms, some of which are obvious, like pain. Some of them are less obvious, like quality of life impairment, falls, cognitive impairment with ADT. There are symptoms that patients will have if we get into them. As I mentioned earlier, many patients, if a third or more, will need psychosocial support if we get into that. Um, and much of our quality of life research has to do with functional characterization and less so of the psychosocial characterization. So please be aware of those issues, not just the physical ones. So there are, when you're talking about end of life, there are um, issues that you obviously have to take into account. 
the setting and the timing. Does the patient want to have this alone or do they want to have support? So I will ask patients, um, do you wish to talk about prognosis when I first meet them? Are there family members you want me to include in these discussions? So you want to be very realistic with the patient. Um, you want to let them know up front if this is, if they have non-curative cancer, be clear with them that this is not curative, that we cannot cure you, but we can help you help prolong your life meaningfully and help uh, improve your quality of life with these therapies. It's, the, it's important to know what the patient's goals are. Do they have life events that they want to get to? Do they have uh, graduations? Do they have, are there financial issues at hand? And I mentioned knowing the resources that are available. Some words to sort of perhaps avoid or to think about before you use that mean things to us but not necessarily the same to your patients. Um, so when we say, well, your cancer has progressed, we know that to be a bad thing, but for a patient that might not be, you know, they think, well, progress is good, right? The country is making progress, that's great. Um, well, so that may be confusing for them. Same um, uh, responding to treatment. What does that mean truly? A positive biopsy. That's one of those oxymoronic statements. Um, and we use dignity. What does that mean to the patient? Really try to get granular about what the, their goals and wishes are. There's nothing I can do. It's not something we should say. Um, on the other end, would you like me to do everything possible is also not the way to talk about code status. Um, and withdrawal of care is a, a phrase that we should also try to avoid. Um, Managing expectations. So we have to explain to patients that more therapy has more extraneous factors. It's not just the side effects, it's all the visits, it's the blood draws. Um, and understanding truly what our expectations of work. I we, we discussed earlier that, um, I don't remember who asked, are these, um, three months additive, you know, you had three months from this, four months from this, three months from this, three months from that. Well, the truth is it probably isn't. And if you're on your fourth line therapy and you've gotten abiraterone and enzalutamide, it's not going to be the same to also get apalutamide. You can't expect 18 months more from that, even though in another setting it did. Um, second or third line chemotherapy, for example, same, same sort of issue. Um, we Immunotherapy, we talked about it a lot today, even though there's very little data to support it in prostate cancer. We all would like to have immunotherapy, um, but the reality is at this point, it doesn't have a huge benefit. So um, we need to be honest with patients of if we're going to do this as part of a clinical trial, what the goals and expectations are. Same with phase one trials. These are really for safety. The response rates are low and do patients want all of the biopsies and all the visits? So there's also um, in-home palliative care services. So this is a great resource that is often available in, in, in every community. So um, hospice organizations 
your VTAS, for example, will have uh, in-home palliative care services that you can refer to, and they will do visiting nurse services with a palliative goal. So patients can, um, they'll check in on their pain and their vital signs and, um, and see how they're doing at home. And it can be a nice transition because then the patients will know these, this team of people that in, if they do transition to hospice, it's not foreign. Something that happens often is that the patient will say, I don't want somebody just coming in my home as I'm, you know, to watch me die. You know, but having a palliative care team that knows them, that's been in their home, can be quite helpful. Um, so this is a, a graph that shows that towards the end of life, so this is a, a graph that's in the last 30 days, there's been a shift um, from uh, to more to fancier versions of radiotherapy, and it's just illustrative to say whether it's radiotherapy or chemotherapy or immunotherapy that we use too much aggressive therapy in the last 30 days of life, and we need to be realistic about what we're giving to the to the patients and what those costs will be. I'm going to skip this. Point is, if it, less, I mean, the point of this slide is that it's less expensive to be in hospice than an inpatient. Well, that's a no-brainer, but it's also most patients would rather be at home than be an inpatient for the end of their life. And getting that sense before they're acutely decompensating is important because if you've got a patient who's decompensating, say, hey, do you want to go to the hospital or do you want to go home? That's a, a discussion you don't want to have in that in that moment. So uh, the duration of, of hospice um, is uh, is important that it's increasing over time, but still for uh, for prostate cancer it's probably underutilized and utilized too late. I'm going to um, skip the, uh, well, let me just go um, to this slide. So in multiple diseases where they have better data, using hospice actually improves overall survival, which is a little bit contrary to what we would think. So patients, if they're, ha they're at home and their quality of life is better surrounded by their family, they actually do better than if we're more aggressive with their care. So one of the uh, questions we often get is, uh, is palliative care available to me? I am in a community. I don't have these kinds of things. Most hospitals have a palliative care program, whether they're a comprehensive cancer center or a non-comprehensive cancer center. Nearly all hospitals will have uh, uh, some palliative care program as an outpatient and an inpatient uh, level. Um, and then inpatient um, palliative care services in their home is becoming more widely available. This was data um, from UCSF showing that, um, first of all, patients have a lot of symptoms when they start. And um, what's important to know is that if they were referred to a palliative care program early, 
They are more likely to be comfortable um, with their visits. They're more likely to re recommend services to other people. And in fact, they were more likely to recommend UCSF because of the palliative care services. So having a team that deals with this actually helps keep people in your practice because patients are getting more comprehensive care. So what's uh, interesting is from a data perspective, um, symptoms, all symptoms went down just with the inclusion of a palliative care consult. Even things of fatigue, like fatigue, which we don't have a medicine for, uh, but depression, anxiety, uh, pain, nausea, and quality of life and well-being goes up with palliative care use. So it's been a long day. I'll summarize to say that, you know, it's really important to know your resources within the community. Um, refer if you need help, but refer early or discuss palliative care early because it actually does make a difference in the care of your patients. To learn how to claim CME credits for your participation in this activity or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org.